0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. So we're in a series on the book of Luke, and we're working our way through the book of Luke. There's 24 chapters in Luke, and we're on chapter 17, and we're going to get through the, the first 10 verses today, and temptations to sin. And uh, I actually had a different portion of Luke chapter 17 that I was originally planning on, on preaching this weekend, but when I prayed about it in the middle of the week, I really felt like the Lord said, no, this is the one I want you to speak on. And, uh, and I, I really just feel his love for us, and he wants to grow us in maturity. And so let's listen to this, and, and, uh, and then we'll dig in. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And then we get one of these great Jesus statements. I hope you're falling more in love with Jesus as we go through this book of Luke. Are you you falling more in love with Jesus as we go through this book of Luke? I know I am. And I just love some of the wild statements he makes. Verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, if I said that, I'd be on the front page of the Winnipeg Free Press. So just so you know, that's Jesus. I'm just reading Jesus, okay? Okay. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There's lots and lots and lots of places we can go in this passage, but let's go back to Luke 1 and let's work our way through it again. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, in many of these passages of Scripture, there are multiple layers that we can look at at in, within the passage, multiple layers. And there's two primary ones in this passage I want to look at. And we'll start by just looking at the surface layer. We'll just look at the face value layer and see what Jesus is saying to us. And then we're going to peel back that layer. I want to look at a second layer. And, and when you see some of the nuances in the second layer, it makes the second half of this passage really come alive. But we'll just start with the face value surface interpretation. And uh, so important. And, And it says temptations to sin are going to happen in this world and in this culture. The Greek there, uh, where it says are sure to come, actually says it's impossible that they not come. So so Jesus says to us, it is impossible in this world, it is impossible that temptations to sin not come to people. So we're living in this world right now, and it's impossible that temptations to sin are not going to come our way. It's impossible that they not come. They will for sure come our way. There will be temptations to sin, and they are going to come. Now, Jesus is going to say something really important here, because some Christians, if we just left it at that, hey, temptations are sure to come, we might kind of get this kind of fatalistic idea, well, temptations are, are, are going to come, so what are we going to do about it? And maybe we might even think, well, I, I may as well just go along with the flow. But Jesus stops us right there, and he says, It is inevitable it is inevitable that temptations to sin will come but that does not release any of you my followers from responsibility woe to the one through whom it comes woe to the one through whom it comes now we kind of in order to really meditate on this passage we have to make it real with with some examples and uh, some of you might uh, get upset with me after some of these examples but if, if we don't think of examples it's so easy to read through these verses And then just go, oh yeah, that's really good what Jesus said. And we don't actually attempt. We're almost afraid subconsciously to try and actually apply these to a real world situation. And as I was meditating on this passage this week, I have a lot of compassion for, for us in our church and in our culture. This passage is going to become increasingly difficult to obey in our culture. So let's just think of some of the ways this could potentially apply so for example let's imagine you own like just just to just to make some broad you know sort of generalizations illustrations let's imagine you own a, a convenience store and uh a, a chain of and, you know you're part of a chain or whatever it is a franchise and and part of the revenue streams for this uh for these convenience stores is to sell uh magazines and maybe some of those magazines are are pornographic or borderline pornographic or close to borderline pornographic, okay? Let's say that that's what's happening. Of course, you don't, you're a Christian, you don't like to sell those kinds of magazines, but your reasoning is, well, if I don't sell them, I mean, this is what we're supposed to do, if I don't sell them, people are just going to go down the street to the next convenience store, and they're just going to buy them there, and I'm going to lose the, I'm going to lose the business, so they're going to buy it anyway. I may as well, like, I don't like it, I'm not encouraging people to do it but I may as well, I, what else am I going to do? It's not going to change anything. And Jesus says in this passage of that kind of thinking, he says, you're right, it is inevitable. They, they will probably go down the street and just get it somewhere else. You're right, they will get it anyway. But then he says this, but woe. Woe to the one. Don't, just because it's inevitable, don't you participate in the system that's perpetuating this sin. Don't you participate in the system that is perpetuating the sin. It might happen, it might be inevitable, but woe to the one through whom it comes. Or I think of one of the things we've uh, celebrated this past year, and I'm so glad for this, is in our province now we have, uh, you know, they passed a law, we have legal protections for our doctors and healthcare uh, workers in terms of participating in things like euthanasia, which is really awesome. But there's other provinces in Canada that don't have that. So let's say you're in one of these provinces and you're a healthcare worker or or a doctor or something and someone comes to you and they want an abortion or they want drugs so that they can kill themselves. And you might be worried, right? A person, a Christian in that uh, situation might be worried and they might think, well, if I don't do it, I could get in a lot of trouble. People could get upset at me. I could get in legal trouble. Maybe I could even lose my job or get a demotion or whatever it is. And if I don't do it, they're just going to go down to the next office. They're just going to go to the next clinic and get it done anyway. So it's going to happen anyway. I may as well, like, you know, and I can maybe try to witness, I can try to do something in there, but I I think I just have to do it. And Jesus says, you're right, it might be inevitable. You're right. They may go to the next clinic. They may kill their baby anyway. They may kill themselves anyway. It may be inevitable, but woe to the one through whom it comes. Don't you participate?" Don't you participate in helping people to sin? And now he's going to really drive this point home. And again, I I want to just remind you again, some of you might be sitting there and you're going, I don't like where this message is going, okay? I just want you to remember, in everything, when you read these passages in your Bible, we don't have it there on the screen in terms of the red letters. This is red letters. I'm just reading to you Jesus' words. He's going to drive this home now. He's really drawing a clear line in the sand. He says, if you're one of my followers, this is what it looks like. And he says this in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus says, you do not want to be the person on judgment day facing me, Jesus speaking. You do not want to be the person on judgment day facing me if you have helped leading some of these little ones astray. You've helped lead some of these little ones into sin. You've helped lead some of these little ones away from Jesus. He says, you don't want to face me. It would be better to die a horrible death than to meet Jesus on judgment day and you participated in a system where you were actively uh, helping people into sin and away from Jesus. Now you say, why so harsh? Like where's the grace? Right? Where's where's the grace in all this? Do you want to know why this why Jesus is so harsh and so serious in his passage? because eternities are at stake. Eternities are at stake. It's not because Jesus is angry that he's preaching this, it's because he has a shepherd's heart. And we looked at this in a message in Luke chapter 15, that Jesus is a good shepherd, and he's constantly seeking to bring the lost sheep into his fold. He's trying to bring these lost sheep into the fold. And he cares about these lost sheep, and he doesn't want them to be lost for all of eternity. And so he says to his followers, some of the other sheep, he says, don't you be standing at the gates and because of your hard-heartedness or because of your fear, and you're actually helping to turn people away from the gates so that they have to live an eternity apart from me in hell. He says, don't you be a part of that. I love those sheep. And yes, temptations to sin might be sure to come, but don't you be one of the ones turning them away at the gate when I'm trying to draw them in. Amen? Amen? And so that's why he says this and of course, I also want to just emphasize here something. He's not just talking about, you know, weakness here. This is not a passage. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about the importance of the example we're setting. Um, but some of you might be sitting here right now, and you might be thinking, like, I've, you know, I, none of us has been perfect. None of us. Not, none, none of us here is anywhere close to perfect. And all of us, including myself, for sure, many times, have fallen into sin and fallen into weakness and done things we shouldn't have, and, and maybe there's people watching, and they get kind of dragged into sin by our example. That's a, that's a serious thing, but it's not what this passage is talking about. It's a serious thing, but that's not what this passage is talking about. And, and we should, our, our, the example we set for people is really, really important, and I feel that as pastor here, I mean, Ladon and I, we, we sometimes talk about it, but every time we're in public, uh, you know, we kind of feel that burden, that in a community of this size and a church of this size, lots of people are watching how we behave. And we know that people are watching. And if, if we behave in certain ways or sinful ways or respond in sinful ways, there are going to be people going to be turned off of Christianity or turned off the church or turned off of Jesus because of that. And all of us, to some extent, that's not a bad pressure. That's a good pressure. We should all feel that to some extent. And we should all feel this soberness about setting a good example and not leading people astray by our example. But I want to just say again, none of us is perfect. And this passage is not talking about you have been weak and you have fallen into sin and you've been a bad example at times in your life and Jesus says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about actively putting a stumbling block, actively leading people astray through maybe you're selling something or you're helping people to sin Or you're teaching people things that encourage them to sin or help them to sin you're actively participating doing teaching leading people in such a way that they're going into sin and jesus says that is a very serious problem for him and again i have so much compassion many of you are in careers and positions that in our culture this is going to become increasingly difficult and complex to obey this passage and I have, a, I have a ton of compassion. It's going to be harder and harder for pastors to do it too. But I mean, I think of, of real specific things. I think what happens, you know, those of you who are teachers, for example. What happens if at some point in the future, you're given curriculum that you have, are told you have to teach that actively encourages children into sin or actively teaches them something that would cause them to doubt the existence of God, or what it, whatever it is. And in that moment, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that moment? And you might think to yourself, well, what, what can I do? I can't do anything. I, I just have to do it. If I don't do it, there's a hundred people there ready, you know, ready and willing to take my place, and they'll just go down to the next class, and they'll just get taught it there. What can I do? And Jesus says, you're right. It is inevitable that temptation to sin will come. But he says, don't you be the one leading my little ones astray. Now again, I'm not offering, I'm not here offering simplistic solutions. I don't know what the answer in all this is. I really don't. I'm not here to judge. I know a lot of people already with the way our culture is going are feeling the tension and are feeling the strain. I know one thing, it's going to take a lot of prayer and discernment. That is what it's going to take. And I know in the Bible, we have examples of people who walked this line with integrity and godliness. I think of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Daniel was one of the highest, most powerful officials in a literally a demonic government. The Babylonian uh, nation and the government, they worshipped demons, all sorts of stuff. He was one of the people in highest office. And somehow he walked that line without ever compromising. He also got thrown into a lion's den at one point. Are you, but are you willing to get thrown to the lions? Really, right? Shadrach and Meshach lived in that same time and had power, but they also were willing to be thrown into the fire. But we do see people who walk this. I don't know, are there ways to, you know, prayerfully, and you're praying and praying and praying, and maybe there's such a way that you can teach it and you can help the kids to see the truth or cast doubt on things or show that it's not true. Whatever it is, I don't know what all the answer is, but it's going to take a lot of prayer and discernment. But I'll tell you one thing. In this passage, Jesus draws a red line in the sand. And he says, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. That's why he has to use such forceful language. But he says, eternities are at stake. And it's actually going to take some boldness. And it's actually going to take some courage. But we're going to have to, at some point, we're going to have to stand and say, we will not participate in anything that leads these little ones astray. Now, of course, when he talks about little ones there, it's more than just children. It certainly includes children. But every commentator will tell you it's more than just children. It certainly includes children, but little ones could be anyone. You know, in, sometimes in the New Testament they refer to new believers as little children or just believers in general as little children. The Apostle John has a tendency to do that. So it could be anyone that looks up to you or that you have authority over. Could be an employee, could be a new believer, could be a weaker brother or sister in the faith. Anybody who's watching you, but Jesus says, woe to the one, I'm trying to bring these sheep into the fold and save them for eternity. And you, because of pressure at work, or you, because of fear of this, or you, because of your hard-heartedness, is leading them to an eternity of darkness. He says, do not be that person. Do not be that person. So that's the first sense of the passage. Everybody can just take a deep breath. We made it through. There's a second layer here, though, that I want us to look at. Temptations to sin. There's a second sense. And when you see the second layer, it makes the second half of the passage really come alive. And so if we go back to verse 1 there. That uh, phrase there, temptations to sin, is one word in the Greek. It's the, it's the word scandalon, And I didn't do a whole bunch of research on that word, but I'm pretty sure. I can't say for sure because I didn't do the research, but I'm pretty sure it's where we get our word scandal from. Okay. But it's an interesting word for Jesus to use in this context because it's not the usual word. In the New Testament, when the New Testament authors want to talk about sin, hundreds of times, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of the times they want to talk about sin, they use the Greek word hamartia, okay? Hamartia means missing the mark, and it's the most common word for sin in the New Testament. But in this passage, they use a much less common word, much, much less common word, and it's scandalon. So what, why? What are the connotations of Scandalon? Well, the interesting thing is Scandalon means a couple of things primarily. In Greek, it means stumbling block and it means offense. Okay? It means stumbling block and it means offense. And when you reread this passage now while emphasizing this aspect of it, and, and again, I'm not making this up, I'll show you in the context. The second half of this passage really comes alive when you uh, take into account the, the, uh, the meaning in Greek. And he said to his disciples, so I'm going to reread it to you now with, with the new, with those words put in there, just from the definition. And he said to his disciples, stumbling blocks of offense, scandal on, are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And now there's just so much here. So along with temptations to sin in just the regular sense, which just certainly is the meaning of this passage, but beneath it, there's this layer of offense. And immediately this passage, we see a whole new depth of meaning to it, don't we? Okay? And so a couple of things we see right off the bat. First of all, we see stumbling blocks of offense are sure to happen. If you live in this world for any amount of time, if you've made it past the one-year mark of your life or the six-month year of your life, then at some point in your life, you are going to be offended so it is impossible that this not happen that's the greek it's impossible that this not happen stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come if you live for any amount of time on this planet offense is going to happen to you so first of all can we just say this can we just get over the shock of that finally you know how many christians The moment someone offends them, boom, it's like this shock. How could this happen in my life? How could they do this to me? The Bible warns us again and again it's going to happen. But it's like you have Christians who are just laid low and wiped out for months and years at a time because someone offended them. And yes, I get they mistreated you. They misjudged you. They were unfair to you. All terrible, justifiable that you feel some anger. Absolutely, that's not wrong but this being wiped out. Yeah, but Chris, they were Christians. Of course they were. If there's Christians around, Christians are going to be some of the ones who offend you. It's just a mad, it's a sad fact, and we'll get to the second part of that in this passage too, because Jesus speaks to them as well. But can we get past the shock, the falling apart, the five years of bitterness? The pulling back from the church and the disillusionment. Oh my, oh terrible, I've been, I've been mistreated and they were a Christian. And I'm so offended and hurt. Yes, they did that, but Jesus warned you. If you live in this world, stumbling blocks of offense are 100% sure to come. You will be mistreated. You will be misjudged. You will be cheated. You will be lied about. All of these things will happen in this world. Yes, 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 and yes. And again, it's okay to be angry. I'm not talking about we hide our feelings and, oh, that didn't bother me at all, and inside we're steaming. That doesn't help at all. But a spiritually mature person, it's not that the spiritually mature person doesn't feel anger, it's that the spiritually, spiritually mature person knows where to go with their anger. And the spiritually mature person knows... It might, you know what, depending on how bad the offense was, it might take you a while to get through it, but they're not, they're not content to stay angry, amen? amen? So they know where to go. They're not, you know, they might be a little surprised, they might be angry, they might be hurt, but they're not questioning God's goodness. They're not questioning the church. Jesus invented the church. It's filled with imperfect people. Say to the person beside you, this church is filled with imperfect people. Yeah. And it would have to be because you're here. Right? It would have to be because you're here. It would have to be because I'm here. So, stumbling blocks of offense, one of the most, well, I'll get to that in a moment. People are going to offend us. People are going to hurt us. And the offenders will sometimes, depending on how many Christians are around you, maybe oftentimes, be Christians. It is inevitable. And we need to get to the place of spiritual maturity where we can begin to move beyond that. Feel the emotions, feel the hurt, move to prayer, and not be completely, utterly devastated and, and smashed to pieces in your spiritual walk and bitter because of it. That's the first passage, the truth for me to take over this passage. Here's the second one Don't be the one causing that kind of offense. Jesus will give us a little spank on the bum on both sides. (laughs) Stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come. We've got to be mature. Feel the hurt and move on. On the other hand, he says, woe to him through whom it comes. Don't be the person calling yourself a follower of Jesus who is going around mistreating people and hurting people and relating to people in hard-hearted ways that turn them off of Jesus and turn them away from the gospel. And again, why the penalty is so harsh is because eternities are at stake. Let's, Let's again get very practical here. Let's imagine you're at a restaurant, okay? You're at a restaurant. You pray before your meal because you're a Christian and you're not ashamed of it. So you pray before your meal. The waitress sees it. The people around you see it. Now, later in the meal, she spills something on you and you lose your marbles. Do you think this passage speaks to that? You think this passage speaks to that? Now, you're going to cut her down. You're going to cut her down in front of that restaurant. You're going to make her feel worthless. All because she was a little bit clumsy and you can't stand it when people spill something on you, but you just showed everybody in that place that you are a Christian? Stumbling blocks of fence. Do you think after that experience, she is going to feel more likely to love Jesus or less likely to love Jesus? Do you think the people in that restaurant, some of whom may know where you go to church, do you think they are more likely to go to church and find out the good news about Jesus or less likely? Less likely. Jesus says, stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come. That waitress will get offended by someone else too. Don't worry about it. She will. But don't you be the sheep at the gate keeping people out when eternities are at stake. This is everything we do, this is every business deal. You say, I don't do anything illegal. Are you so ruthless and hard-hearted in the way you press your advantage to win, 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 win that people want less of Jesus or more of Jesus just so you can make a little bit more money? Stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come, but I'll tell you one of the most common, maybe not the most common, but one of the most, certainly in the top group of things in 16 years of being a ministry here at this church. In my office, one of the top group of things over 16 years that I have heard the most Commonly, is this the biggest turn off to the gospel and the biggest turn off to coming to church is how Christians behave. Christians in business, Christians in restaurants, Christians with their money. Jesus says, Temptations, stumbling blocks of offense are sure to come, but don't you literally, in some ways, turn people to an eternity of darkness because you're trying to make a few extra bucks, or because you didn't like that your shirt got wet, or whatever the thing was. Don't you do it. Woe to him through whom it comes. Now again, Jesus' grace is so good. We all make mistakes. We all mess up. And Jesus, this is not the unforgivable sin either. You might be sitting there, you might be like, oh my goodness. And you can think of instances or things you've done recently or patterns of behavior. And you go, oh my goodness I have been a bad example I've turned people off of the faith perhaps even by my behavior The good news is this is not the unforgivable sin Jesus can forgive anything And he can, he has grace you repent and come to him and he washes it away again he's so happy to do that But this is serious And you don't want to be one of those Christians that just unrepentantly lives in that and then faces Jesus on judgment day, and he says let me show you a few sheep who aren't going to be here because of you That would be a terrifying thing amen Now, let me just say something else as well. There's good offense and there's bad offense. Just because someone's offended with you doesn't mean that you're in the wrong. How many of you know that to be true? Isn't that true? One of the things I love about Jesus, it's one of the things I love about reading the Gospels. Jesus offended lots of people, didn't he? He He was like a genius at offending people, okay? But he didn't offend people sinfully. He offended people standing for truth, okay? And there's no question... Especially living in the culture we're living in now, increasingly, us just standing for what is right and for what is true is offensive to our culture. Now again, you know, a little, a teaspoon of sugar makes the medicine go down. We should always try to coat. I haven't always been good at this and I want to get so much better and I'm I'm growing in it, I believe. We always want to coat the message of truth in as much love and grace as we possibly can. Amen. But ultimately, standing for truth in our culture is already offensive and will become more offensive. And it's not our sin when we stand up for truth and someone else gets offended. That's their sin, and that's, they will be judged for that on Judgment Day, not us. In fact, it's our sin if we lead them astray by compromising the truth. That's when this passage applies to us. And then there's other reasons people get offended too, right? Sometimes people are just easily offendable. just walk through life and you look at them wrong they're constantly offended they just have certain seasons of the year and they're just going to be offended at that time and if you say anything to them they're going to be offended that's not your sin that's their sin and I know also there's complicated situations that happen and misunderstandings and you talk to this person and they saw it this way and this person saw it this way and you try to make it better and the person just won't receive it that's not your sin either in a message like this, Romans 12, verse 18, has got to be one of the most encouraging passages. Here's what Romans 12, verse 18 says. If possible. Don't you love that word, if? If possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul says, some people, you just, they won't ever get over it. And you made, a, you made a mistake, and you went back and said, sorry, they, won't, they just won't get over it. Or things happen and you try to work it out as best you could, they just won't get over it. As far as is possible for you, you do your part. That's not your sin. Amen? So this passage isn't talking about those things. But this is talking about Christians who live in compromise, who are intentionally selling, teaching, or leading people astray into sin. Whatever it is. Or out of their hard-heartedness, the way they treat people, who are leading them into sin, leading them away from Jesus. Jesus says that is a serious, serious thing. And so we move on. Verse 3. This thing of offense is so potentially dangerous that Jesus goes on now to say this. Pay attention to yourselves. On both sides of of the equation, pay attention to yourselves. First of all, pay attention. Do you have, are you harboring and nurturing offense in your own life? Do you have bitterness in your own life? you have hurt that you're nurturing in your own life, pay attention to yourselves. That is a soul killer. It's a spirit killer. Pay attention to yourselves. And on the flip side, don't be the offender. How are you behaving? You might just think, oh, it's just my personality. That's that's how I treat people. You know what? On judgment day, personality And you'll say to Jesus, and he'll say, look at all these sheep who would have come into the kingdom, but they didn't because of you. And you'll just say, well, it was my personality. I don't think you'll dare look into his eyes of fire and say that. If that's part of your personality, you need to get that part of your personality redeemed, and you need to get it redeemed as quick as possible. Amen? It's a personality treating people wrong. I'll tell you what Jesus' personality is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's gentle and patient and kind. And I don't care what personality you are. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's gentle. It's patient. It's kind. It's loving. It's joyful. And that's what Jesus wants us to be. So he says, pay attention to yourself. Don't just fall back on personality. Or don't just fall back, I have to be this in my whatever, career business or different things, whatever it is. It's not how you have to be. You've got, there's one thing you have to be in Jesus' eyes, and that's attractive to his kingdom. So pay attention to yourselves, the way you treat your employees, the way you treat your partners, the way you treat your, you know, fellow co-workers and and business partners and all of that. Pay attention to yourselves. And now, in the rest of this passage, he gives us a formula for overcoming the trap of offense. And as always with Jesus, he teaches so simple, I love it, it's simple, brutally hard to follow through but it's simple. So he gives us, he gives us two things. Here's how we're going to fight against offense. Here's, here's the two things. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. I just love Jesus. It's always simple. It's not, a, it's not a 10 complicated steps in how they all interplay with each other in different ways in different days. It's just two things. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Very hard sometimes to carry out. I mean, number one is often very hard for people to to carry out. It's a lot easier to talk behind people's back, isn't it? When someone hurts you, rather than go and talk to them and look them in the eyes with courage and, and say, this really bothered me and try to work it out. It's a lot easier just to hate the person and talk to everybody around you about how bad they are. But Jesus says, first thing you do is when someone hurts you, you go and you look them in the eyes and you talk to them about it. So much gets healed right there. Now, you'll notice that I put in brackets, in love. And the reason I put that there is, some of you actually find step one easy to do. But I'll tell you this, those of you who find step one easy to do, you probably most of the time do it wrong. People who find number one easy to do, usually do it wrong. So it's got to be in love. And if you have a hard time doing it, you've got to get your courage up and you've got to pray and you've got to go in there and you've got to love. But you got to talk to them about it. God will do so much to that. But then after that, if he repents, you got to forgive him. Now, I should also say this. Some of you are going, sweet, only if he repents. (laughs) Well, there's a whole load of passages I could show you. I mean, Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, did he forgive the soldiers after they repented or while they were killing him? He forgave the soldiers while they were killing him. Okay? So it's not just, he's just in the middle of, of speaking on this right now. But if they repent, you must forgive. You say, well, what if they don't? really mean it? What if they've hurt me again and again and again and again? Surely then it's not a real repentance, and surely they don't deserve forgiveness. Well, Jesus was thinking about that too. That's what he says in verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day. By the way, this is how I also know this passage is speaking about marriage, because where else could you be annoyed by someone seven times in one day, right? Or whatever. (laughs) That never happens with me in the dawn at all. But for some of you, I see you in your marriages and and that's what happens. Right? I don't ever annoy annoy her. She just looks at me starry-eyed. But anyway, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. This is Jesus' antidote to offense. Go and talk to the person. And then after that, that's the first step. Go and talk to them. So much gets healed up right there. But number two, forgive, 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 forgive. You say, does Jesus not care about the fact of how much this person is hurting me? He does care, and that's why he wants you to forgive them. See, your holding on to the offense doesn't hurt them. It hurts you. Your holding on to the offense shackles you to the things they did to you. So it hurts when they hurt you, but now in holding on and nursing the offense, it continues to hurt you, and if you hold on to that offense for months, then it continues to hurt you for months, and if you hold on to it for years, it continues to hurt you for years. But as long as you hold on to the bitterness, you are shackled to the things they did to you, and you will not be free until you let go of it. Jesus loves you, and that's why he says to you, forgive them. It's not about them. It's about you. Now you say, but if I do that, they're going to get off scot-free. That's our fear. If I do that... Adam Bueller doesn't like the message. uh, That point was convicting him, so... right? But if I, if I let go of the forgiveness, I mean, if I let go of the bitterness, then they're getting off scot-free. And again, this is where this passage is so encouraging. They don't get off scot-free. Do you remember before Jesus, he's first of all, he's telling us not to be offended. But then to the offender, he says, but woe to the one through whom it comes. You letting them off the hook of bitterness is not them getting off the hook of justice. If they don't repent, They will face jesus over what they've done to you and jesus does love you you're one of his sheep but you can't bear the burden of bringing them justice it's too heavy a weight for us as humans to bear you have to leave that with jesus jesus i have to leave justice in your hands i have to forgive them and not hold anything against them and furthermore when you and i hold on to bitterness it shows that it shows two things about us. First of all, it shows that we have pride and that we have lack of gratitude. We have failed, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll say it again. We have failed to see how much Jesus has forgiven us for. Isn't that true? Again, if you stood anyway, the, the way I get to this, because usually we sit in church, none of us has any, done anything really overtly bad, I hope, in the last 15 or 20 minutes. So we sit here in church, and we're not thinking about all the bad things we've ever done, so we just kind of feel like nice people. I'm a pretty good person. If if any one of us would come up on this stage and we would put all of our sins up on the screen, our darkest, most lustful thoughts, the most shameful deeds, hurtful words we've said to people, lies we've told, exaggerations, terrible ways that we've treated people, if all of those would get played on a screen behind me of mine, or any one of you came up here and I was played for you, you would feel how wicked you really are. Isn't that true? You would feel humiliated and ashamed. And yet, when you went to Jesus and when you go to him even now, and you say, I'm so sorry, he doesn't grudgingly say, okay, I forgive you. He joyfully goes, I love to wash it away and never think of it again. He loves to do that, but then we will turn around. It shows pride. We don't have, we don't have a grasp of how hard-hearted and wicked we are. Now I can turn around and someone else has done something to me and I'm going to hold on to it. Jesus says that's pride. And it shows a lack of gratitude is the second thing. A lack of gratitude for all that Jesus has done with me. When I am humbled, when I realize how much Jesus has forgiven me and how good he is, now I can turn and yes, that person hurt me and I don't deny that it hurt. And also, can I just take a time out and say something else? Again, I I try to always say this whenever I talk about forgiveness because some people hear it wrong. Forgiveness and trust are not the same things. They're not the same. It does not say you have to trust everybody seven times. Nowhere in the Bible does it say seven times a person sins against you and seven times you turn around and trust them. It never says that in the Bible, it says you forgive. Trust is a different thing. Forgiveness is free, trust is earned. Forgiveness is free, trust is earned. Someone rips you off badly in a business deal and doesn't come through paying or doing whatever it was they were going to do, I wouldn't do business with them again. I'll love them, have them over for dinner, yes. Maybe give me a month to get over it, depending on how much money it was, right? <laughs> Work through the anger. Pray to Jesus, pray blessings on them, and then after that, I love you. Absolutely, I love you. That, we got to get, that's spiritual maturity. But do business with you again, I'm going to have to see some changes there before I do that again, amen? amen? Trust and forgiveness are two different things. And that's important for us to get. But, we must forgive. And you will never have a close relationship with Jesus or feel his grace flowing through your life if you're holding on to bitterness. So you say, well, how do I do this? Well, let's finish this message off. There's a few more verses that I wanted to get to. So Jesus says seven times in a day, and they turn around, seven times you forgive them. This is what the disciples say. And I just love the disciples. They're so human. They're so much like us. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, this is impossible this cannot be done. That kind of forgiveness is cannot be done. So you're going to have to increase our faith. And then Jesus says this. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, and a mustard seed is tiny. In other words, whatever faith you have is enough. It's not the, si- it's not the size of your faith. A grain of mustard seed, a mustard seed is nothing. If you have any faith at all, you have enough faith. You don't need lots of faith. They already had enough faith. If you had faith just that small, that's plenty, okay? You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, this is one of those passages that often gets quoted out of context, and people claim this passage for all kinds of things of healings and miracles, and certainly, I don't deny, yes, and you're walking with Jesus, and you're walking with him closely, and there's faith that can rise up in you, and you can claim a verse like this, and, and, he, d- and he does miracles, and that's amazing. But the context of this passage, this is not a miracle passage in that sense, or claiming a healing uh, passage. This is not one of those things. This is all in the context of forgiveness. This is all in the context of forgiveness. Jesus says, seven times you forgive. They say, we can't do that. You better increase our faith. He says, you don't need more faith. You already have enough faith to move. To move. Well, in this case, it's, uh, it's not the mountain, right? It's the, it's the uh, mulberry tree. But you can move a mulberry tree. But what he's talking about, that mountain or that mulberry tree, is forgiveness. You can forgive even the hardest things. And then he goes on and he says this. There's one ingredient. There's only one ingredient you need to have. And if you have this ingredient, you can forgive anything by Jesus' power. He goes on to say this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded. So remember, this is all in the context of forgiveness. He says, the command is seven times I do something to you, seven times you forgive him. You just forgive and forgive and forgive. So also when you have done all that you have been commanded, and that means forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And you say, that was Jesus' big piece of advice when it comes to, to forgiveness. That was his big piece of advice. See, there's only one thing. There is only one ingredient you need to obey. The disciples thought we need more faith. We need some kind of a process or something. Jesus, there's only one thing you need in order to fulfill this commandment, and that is this, the determination inside that I'm going to do it by Jesus' power. You just need to be committed inside. It's not going to happen overnight. Depending on what was done to you, it might take months, it might take years. But that mountain of unforgiveness, that mulberry tree of unforgiveness that's in your life and you don't know how to overcome it, you only need one thing before God and that is determination in prayer. To say in your heart every morning, I am hurting, I am angry, I'm bitter. You don't hide your feelings. You don't pretend they're not there. That's a, that's a surefire way to disaster. But you take those feelings to God and you say, I am hurting real bad and I'm upset. But I'm going to tell you one thing, Jesus. I'm your servant and your command is forgive. Therefore, I am committed to forgiving. Please help me to forgive. And then you pray blessings on that person. Then you get up and you go to work and you come back the next day and it's still hurting and you say, Jesus, it's still hurting. But I, you, I am your servant and you have told me to forgive and I will forgive them. Please help me to forgive. And then you pray blessings on them. But Jesus says, that's what faith looks like. You don't need big faith. You don't need complicated faith. You just need that inside, I will obey. And I will not stay in unforgiveness. I will not stay in bitterness because Jesus, my master, has told me. And I will not. And if you do that... And you persist in that, the Holy Spirit will give you everything you need. And at some point, someday, as you continue to pray and pray and pray, suddenly you will find the mulberry tree has been lifted, the mountain has been lifted, and suddenly Jesus' grace and joy are flooding into your heart again. Because those things cannot flood into your heart as long as you are feeling bitter. I've talked with people. I've sat in restaurants with people. I've had people in my office who tell me with tears in their eyes, I wish I could feel the joy of the Lord again. I wish I could feel Jesus speaking to me again. I wish I could feel that closeness I used to feel. But they can't, and the reason is because of bitterness. You can't have closeness with Jesus and bitterness at the same time. You can't have happiness and joy and bitterness at the same time. So Jesus says, forgive. And we say, yes, sir. We are unworthy s- servants. We will only do what is our duty. So I'm going to get you to close your eyes and to bow your heads And I want us just to allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to us a little bit here this morning. For some of you, as I said before, I I don't do a lot of weddings anymore, but I did a wedding recently, and and it's something I've been thinking about when I do these wedding messages now is the importance. I I said it before in a joking way, but forgiveness in, in marriage. Because when you live with someone, little things can pile up, and they can become big things, and they can pile up and pile up and pile up. We need to practice forgiveness every day in our families and in our marriages and in our relationships. Every day to let go and say to Jesus, I'm just letting go. I'm forgiving. Lord Jesus, I am letting go and I'm forgiving. Lord Jesus, you've done so much for me and then you ask him for his perspective. Jesus, give us your perspective. How much you've forgiven us for. And now, Jesus, in light of that, we thank you and we forgive. Lord Jesus, we think of some of the things our parents did to you and did to us in the past. Lord, today we are letting go. Please help us to forgive. We're letting go. It's Mother's Day. Maybe our moms did something to us in the past or didn't do something for us in the past. Today, Lord Jesus, we are letting go. Help us to forgive. Business deals that have gone south, people have taken advantage of us and they were Christians. Jesus. We're letting that go. Help us to forgive. Help us to forgive. Lord Jesus, I pray that a river of forgiveness would begin to flow in this church, a river of mercy and gratitude and forgiveness that would overwhelm our souls in this church with joy and love and mercy. We are going to forgive. Please help us to forgive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.